0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Boy, what a good day to gather and to worship God. We're going to continue our worship. We're going to read in chapter 9 of First Samuel. We've been continuing in our series. Um, if you've been following along with us, this story is, uh, teaches us so much. And here we're introduced to Saul. We've been talking about this man that the people are crying out for, for a king. And today we're introduced to this man, Saul who would become the king of Israel. And so we're going to read in chapter 9, uh, the first 17 verses. Let's, let's listen to God's word. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, and son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish se- said to his son, Saul, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the, came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, "'Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care for the donkeys and become anxious about us.' But he said to him, "'Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go.' Then Saul said to his servant, "'But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread that is in our sacks is gone.' And there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, their They met young young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. This is God's word. What a funny story. This is a really a funny story. Funny in the way that it seems so oddly normal. We just read 17 verses of this story and it just seems so normal, so mundane, so daily. It seems the way that the story starts out and unfolds, it it shouldn't be in the Bible, but better suited for a blog that's titled When Donkeys Go Missing and Minor Irritations on the Farm. Right? (laughs) I mean, this is just so strange. Why talk about this? It's not merely about a story of a man who lost something valuable to him. This is a story about a man who goes looking for donkeys and comes back a king. There's so much going on here. We've mentioned... Early in our series, uh, three dominant themes in this book for us. One is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see this unfolded in many different ways throughout this story. God continues to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Another theme is that God's promise to raise up from, from among them a leader, raising up from among them his king to lead his people and bring salvation. And so we're anticipating God. God's actions. We're anticipating his promise to this foreshadow of a king that will raise up and save them. And another dominant theme, which we'll talk about today, is that God is working in the midst of our circumstances, even when it appears he is not. We've introduced this briefly, but today this passage goes out of its way to show us that God makes the little details of our lives and makes them to become conduits and channels of his provision of love for us. He takes the daily things, the small things that we overlook. So if you're going through a hard day and you're just exhausted in your day and you're going to the grocery store and looking for a parking spot and right there you pull up and right there next to the shopping cart return is a spot just for you at the front of the store. Is God working in your life? Was that a God thing? I don't know. Maybe I've gone too far. By the look on your face, maybe that's, I'm just being spirit, overly spiritual and ridiculous. But am I? I mean, I, what, 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 what circumstances of our lives does God care about? Which ones does he not care about? Studies have shown that, there's, that we make upwards of 35,000 con- cognitive decisions a day of the littlest things. And maybe one of those decisions today is whether or not you're going to believe that statistic or not. I don't know. But we make 35,000 decisions just like that, from what we're going to wear to eat to, to who we're going to talk to, to even the things that we say. All of those little things add up. Which of those decisions does God care about? Which of those is He directing and is He ordaining and is He working through to bring about His plans for us and our lives? Does God really care about the little things like that? How involved in our lives is he really? Lots of good questions come out of this this passage today. To what degree does God intervene in in the affairs of the world and in the affairs of your life? How do we follow God when we cannot see him clearly acting in the details of our life? Can we follow God when we cannot see him working? And how should you and I relate to a culture that loves to live by sight, in seeing how things appear rather than by faith. And we find the answers to these questions and others in this passage. We'll see that God is at work even when it seems like He is not. We will see, second, that we, the world is obsessed with appearances and how things seem. And thirdly, we need to see how God's provision frees us from enslavement to how the world works. And so, first, let's get into this is that God is at work even when it seems like He is not. Here's how the story goes. So you follow along in this just normal, normal story. As far as we know, it's just another day on the farm. Saul is maybe in the middle of breakfast. His father comes into the room a bit disturbed that the donkeys have gone missing. So he says, would you, would you take somebody with you, take one of the workers, and go looking for the donkeys? Don't you just hate it when that happens your donkeys run off? And, uh, and they go off and they go looking for it. Think of all the chain of ordinary events that have to happen in order for Saul and Samuel to meet that day. Think about all the little details that had to happen. The wandering donkeys, the inability to find them quickly, the fact that they were tired of looking and desire to turn back, but they are... are intrigued to go forward the fact that his servant has with him a quarter of a shekel to give to Samuel as a gift so that Samuel would in turn give them advice the women at the well that they meet the fact that Samuel arrives in that city that very day at the very moment that they arrive and that he is walking towards them the very moment that they're looking for him any one of those things that goes wrong and they're not meeting that day at any moment any one of these details happens differently Saul and Samuel would not have found each other, and the story would sound very, very different. What are the chances, we might ask? What are the odds that all of these things would come together at the right moment? Well, it's ironic to even ask that question, because we know it's not by chance. We know that it's not determined by the odds. We know it's not by coincidence this happened, but we know that it was ordained by God completely apart from Saul's, his knowing completely apart from his awareness of what was happening. He's just going about his day and things are happening to him. But we are given a glimpse in the story, a pause in the story in verse 15 to 17. If you read through verse 14 and then skipping over 15 to 17 and right to 18 and continue in the story, not, there is no, nothing is missed. Not, not, it doesn't miss a beat, It just the story is fine like that. But 15 through 17 are given for the reader's benefit. 15 through 17 are given for you and for me. What appears to be a casual string of events is completely under God's direction. Saul is sent. The donkeys are sent missing. Saul is sent. His steps are appointed. Who he is is revealed to Samuel. And we are told explicitly in this scripture that this is all because of the ordaining work of God. Every single detail. Sometimes it helps to be clued in on the story, doesn't it? Sometimes it helps to be clued in on the secret, but most of the time, God does not give us that privilege. Most of the time, God is doing things in our life, and we have no knowing. It is completely beyond our own awareness. Do you wonder what God's doing right now, today, in your life? Do you wonder what movement His hand is taking in your decisions, even the decision to wake up this morning and come to church to worship a God as, 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 as energetic or l- lack of energetic you were this morning, all the things that you wanted to do but you did this instead, you ever wonder what significance that plays in the whole grand scheme of your life? I don't mean to creep you out, but God is working in those little things. He is working in the daily things to create conduits of his provision for you. When something happens in your life, behind it are a million things happening, a million ordained decisions by God. Despite human wickedness or even despite our own idiot decisions that we have in our life, God is at work to provide for his people. Do you realize the string of events that have to happen for you in your life merely for you to stand up from a seated position into a standing position? Somewhere deep in your brain there's an impulse and a desire that happens for you to no longer be sitting and you want to stand up. Your brain tells your muscles, your heart pumps blood through your body, your tendons tighten, your muscles contract, synapses in your brain fire at rates beyond 300 miles per hour to literally over trillions of of neurotransmitters in your brain. The, The fluid in your ears, the your eye movement and many other systems in your body are working together so that when you do stand up, you don't fall over because of dizziness. I'm not a doctor, I just know how to use Google, okay? All of these things, all of these things and many other things are happening and all you wanted to do was do the thing that you do 500 times a day and just stand up. So much is happening that you are completely unaware of. And verse 15 to 17 are there for you and me, not for the story. They are there for, so that we can be aware of God's working behind everything that we do. Behind every decision that we make, as, as, as uh, reactive as it is, or even if it's due to our own idiot decisions, or even it's due to things that are beyond our control, a million other things are happening that we are not aware of. And however, we might ask, okay, this makes sense. I mean, I, I know a lot of these things happen like this in the Bible. We see a lot of this in the Old Testament history of God's working in, in his people's lives. And it makes sense that God would do something like this for, for a, a big decision like this. God is wanting to pu- make a king for his people. And so it makes sense that God would, would orchestrate the smallest events so that this would happen. But how involved is God in my life? Seems likely he'd be involved in the life of his king but how involved is he in my life? The Bible shows us that when it comes to God's actions in the world, there is no distinction between major events and minor events. We see that God has no distinction between how he works in big things that that seem to be big things and things that seem to be daily, mundane, and just ordinary. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. It means that our desires our plans, our actions, even the things that are beyond our own control still somehow are very much a a part of and under God's direction. And most of the time we are never clued in into the secret ways that God is moving, but He is telling us that He is. God's strange providence, you can think of it as God's strange way, His strange providence is not exclusive only to the super or elite Christians. His strange providence of working in our life extends to each and every one of his people, no matter how common or simple it seems. And unlike 1 Samuel 9, we might not know the secret of how God does that. You may see traces of it, Maybe you have, this has happened in your life where you see traces of God's hand in your life, but much later in life. And so seasons or even years go by and you look back and you say, I was not aware of it, but now I see God's hand of blessing, His hand of ordaining, His hand of privilege in my life to prevent things from happening or even to cause things to happen so that I could be where I am today. And I'm so thankful for that. But in the moment, you had no idea what was happening. In the present, you may be just like Saul, completely in the dark. You're just looking for donkeys, you're just looking for lost treasure. You went searching for a penny, and what you found was a hidden treasure. And you didn't even know that God was ordaining those steps for you to do that. So here's the first point if you summarize it God's secret ways are not to be misunderstood as a lack of his care for you. This is what God is showing us through this story. There's so much in here that's answering the questions of God, do you care what's going on? And God may say, I may act in secret, and my providence is, is strange in the way that I am providing for you, but if you do not see it, it does not mean I'm not working. God is working out his promises, even when it looks like he is nowhere around. Do you see that in his life? It's the same way he works in yours. He's even working behind your desires. He's even working in your plans. He's working in your dreams that you have. It may be right in front of your nose and you don't even see it. the things that our passage shows us is that because of our desire to forget this all the time, it shows us something about our desire. It also shows us something about the world's desire and that is that the world is obsessed with appearances. Just look briefly at this. Kish is a man of wealth. Saul looks like a young Denzel Washington, okay? I mean, he is just like, the writer uses 40, you don't think that was funny? That's like hilarious. The writer uses no less than 40 words to describe how beautiful Saul is, how handsome he is. If there was a Mr. Israel competition, he would be crowned as champion, okay? Saul wants... Saul wants to rush home because he's troubled, uh, that his father is worried about him because of the appearance that might happen because he's gone for too long. And so there's that. He wants to come home. Anxiety is brought on by appearances and fear and things like that. They desire to see a man of honor in the city. They want to impress him with a gift. Uh, Do you see how how much in this passage is showing us what's valuable in the world, what's valuable for them at the time? Appearances, accomplishments, honor, anxiety is brought on because of a lack of appearance and things, how they seem to be. Saul says, "I'm later in verse 18, he says, I'm nobody, I'm just a man from Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin. Why are you talking to me? I'm not important. And why is he not important? Because Benjamin's tribe was not well known and it was small. Everything had to do with how things seem. And therefore he wasn't important. Why? When things happen that appear to be wonderful in our life, or appear to be wonderful in hindsight, we say it was such a God thing. Have you ever used that phrase or even heard of that phrase before? Something, for something to be a God thing? Prayers are answered for healing and that person is healed and made well and we say, wow, God was there. God showed up. But who got up this morning and had breakfast with their family and say, God showed up. We are given another day to take a breath to have a meal. It's too common for us to look on major events in our lives that are very good and say, wow, that was the work of God. And then to see another day in the life, of, uh, life on the farm and see donkeys go missing and, and not say, wow, what is God up to? We should not make that same mistake And let's be honest with ourselves, why do we do that? What makes something a God, just think of this in your own mind, what makes something that happens a God thing and what makes something happen not a God thing? Here's what it is. When we say that, when we say something's a God thing and something's not a God thing, I believe it's this, it's because we believe, we believe that God is involved in our life only to the extent that it's obviously apparent that he is looking out for us in our interests. So if we see that God does something in our life that is in our interests and blesses us in obvious ways, we think that God's working. But if he doesn't do that, we think that he has disappeared. The world is obsessed with appearances, and we have to admit that we are too. God does not care about how things look. God does not care about appearances. He tells us without any hesitation later in the book in this book in chapter 16 which we'll get to in a few weeks that he does not care about how things seem. He is much more concerned with the character of it. In 1 Samuel 16 he says for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. What this passage implies is that it is always inappropriate to dismiss God for not working in our life the way that we want him to. So something happens in our life and it seems like God is missing and that he's not working, so we dismiss him. It is always inappropriate to do that. God does not care about how things seem. How do you know that he's not working in your life right now? How do you know that there aren't things going on in your life that are right under your nose that you're completely oblivious to? They're happening for your good. God is working in circumstances, creating conduits of His provision in your life through the mundane and the daily and the ordinary. It's right under your nose and you don't even see it. How do you know that a million things aren't happening like that? In these days, in the time of this story is given, there were characteristics that made People feel valuable. There were things that happened in in a life of a person that made them favorable to others. And both are highlighted in our passage, and both have to do with appearances. First, let's talk about men. What was it 3,000 years ago that made a man in that time valuable and important? It was his stature, it was his wealth, it was his success in life, it was his outward appearance. It was his handsomeness. For women, what was valuable 3,000 years ago for women? They were valuable if they were youthful and if they were sexually attracted, attractive. Saul a young Denzel. We already saw this, so he's checking all the boxes, right? Young, successful, wealthy, a man of honor in the community, handsome, taller than everyone, What about the women here? The word used for these women that gathered at the well is the word that literally means eligible women or marriageable women. And it has this deep connotation of of sexual beauty and youthfulness. A long time ago, these were the values that made men and women important. Aren't you glad we don't live in those days anymore? (laughs) Sexual beauty for women, youthfulness, looking as young as they can, and men that have proven to be men of great success and great providers, men of accomplishment, not of character. God says, I do not care about how things seem. I care about what is. I care about the heart. Wouldn't it be horrible to live in those days? This is what the world says. The size of your wallet is more important than the size of your character. The size of your dress is more important than the size of your character. The color of your skin is more important than the size th- than your character. If you have money, power, talent, looks, and youthfulness, you don't need anything else. This world is set up and created that if you have those things, you don't need anything else. And God's people bought into that lie, and God's people today continue to buy into that lie. What drives your dreams? What drives your joy? What drives your motivation and your very life? Are they the same things that drive the world? The things that the world worships, which are appearances and accomplishments. You feel valuable if you, if you have done something good in the world's eyes. You trust God and believe he's working if, he, if you can see it happening in your life every day. I know people that stay in their jobs that they hate and they never see the family that they love in order to continue to to maintain a lifestyle that they crave. I know people who struggle with debilitating self-esteem and depression and fear every day of their life because they are enslaved by what other people think of them. Everything is about how they appear to others. Everything is about appearances. But God promises to free us from our own stupidity. He promises to be faithful to his purposes. And he promises that he's working in the mundane things of our life every single day to provide for us. There's something something that rescues us from this way of living. The clue is found at the end of verse 16, where God says, I've seen my people and their cry has come up to me. I've seen my people because their cry has come up to me. Finally, we see in this passage that God's provision, his care, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his provision, providence frees us from enslavement to the world's ways. There is a much, there's much meaning in this simple expression that we see. Their cry has come up to me. It's a very tender sympathy. It's a very tender compassion a concern for them and their suffering, and a resolution to engage in their life to help them. Don't you hear that? If God were to say that to you, if he were to say, your cry has come up to me, I see you, what would we hear from God? We would, say, we would hear him say, well, you notice me, you care for me. But not only that, we would hear him say, well, he's going to do something about it. He's going to rescue us. Because he loves us. You know, what do we know about the people of God up to this point? If you followed this story, or even if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know a little bit about God's people, you know this. They are foolish, they are stubborn, they are disobedient, they are unfaithful. When it comes to spiritual success, they are failures. Yet, they do not cease to be the objects of God's affection. To some degree, have you bought into the lie that you are important to God based on appearance and accomplishments and spiritual success? Probably. You probably have. To some degree, have your hopes and your dreams and your habits and your actions been driven by what the world values? Again, probably. You and I both. What what is the message of the Bible? What's the message of this story? It is not that God blesses those who live morally and godly lives. The message of the Bible is that God continually and relentlessly gives his grace to people who don't deserve it. And that means no matter how bad you've screwed up your life, no matter how forgetful of God's love you have been, if you are a child of God, you are and will forever remain the object of God's mercy and love, and he will not give up on you, ever. And it means that he is working in things right under your nose that you probably don't see. For your good, it means that he is orchestrating your lives and your steps. And you think you're just going about your day. And he is working tirelessly to to point you to his care, to point you to his love, and to complete in you the good work he has started. And he will never stop until the work is done. It's all by grace it's grace from beginning and in the middle and in the end it's all by God's grace and yet there's something we must do see this doesn't mean that we minimize our sin and do whatever we want it doesn't mean like great he's going to accomplish everything he's done there's nothing that's I'm responsible for we are to do something what are we to do remember God says man looks on the outward appearance but I look at the heart real beauty is not what the world says it is real beauty is a heart that cries out to God it is a heart that cries out to God brought on by our own realization of our utter helplessness apart from God a real beauty a real love for God is demonstrated in a heart that says God help as a result of our helplessness and hopelessness without him it is a crying out in our need for him God is never indifferent to the sorrows and suffering of his people and here's the kicker even if it's your fault And he seems to wait for our cry. And here again is this secret providence of God that I don't fully understand, where it is by grace that God extends his care for us. It's by his grace that he orchestrates our steps. But he waits to hear the cry of his people. God says, I see my people, I see them in their suffering, and their cry has come up to me. God doesn't need to wait for us to cry out, but He seems to delight in waiting for us to cry out. He seems to wait for us to extend a cry of help to Him in our un- acknowledgement of our own need for Him. It's, it's a sign of our humility and our brokenness before Him. The grace of God is opposed to earning. There is nothing in our record or character that, is, that shows God we are deserving of His love. And yet the grace of God is not opposed to effort in crying out for help. In offering up our need to Him and with open hands saying, God, there is nothing that I have to offer you. Help me. Our, our effort is to cry out in our helplessness. And this crying out is a, a foretaste of, of Christ as we look on the cross and we see God's love poured out for us. We see this as a foretaste of, of, of the cry of Christ on the cross. How so? Well, here in 1 Samuel, we see that God's people are hurting and they cry out for a king. And God answers their cry ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? The scriptures reveal that ultimately Jesus is king of kings. And this God answers our cry for help in ways more beautiful than you can even understand. On the cross, in in Israel they cried out for a king for help, and on the cross God sends a king to die for his people. Here we see that the servants cry out for a king, and so the king himself becomes a servant. And it was the king on the cross who cries out on behalf of his people for us to be saved. From the cross, Jesus is the one crying out on our behalf. On the cross, we see that Jesus answers our cries, that he sees our need. He, his, our, our need cr- co- comes up to him And he becomes our sin. He becomes a servant, even though he was a king. Jesus is the only king in all of history that would become a servant to answer the cries of his people. Every other religion, every other history, every other king in history says, if you're hurting, here is what you need to do in order to be better. You have to work your way to my provision. But in in the gospel, in Christianity, in the God of the Bible, he is the only king that says, I will become a servant. And I will be the one that suffers on your behalf. And I will cry out to God, my Father, to help you. And because Jesus was perfect, because he lived the life that you and I needed to live, but failed to live, and he dies on the cross and takes the punishment for our sins, only then can you and I cry out for help and be assured that God hears us, that he will help us, that he is working in the mundane things of our lives, creating conduits of his love and mercy. He's working in your life today. You're being reminded of this for a reason because God is asking you to trust in Him, to not follow the the values of the world, to not look for appearances, and to not, not forget His care for you. God wants you to hear this good news because He wants you to know His love for you. Do not give up. Continue to cry out for help. He answers you. He will answer you. He hears you. He's strong enough, and He will never give up. Let's pray.